Our theme for today's worship is the call of the kingdom. And it's particularly that last verse of Mark's um, gospel, the, the, not the last verse of Mark's gospel, the last verse that we read from the first chapter of Mark's gospel that I'm going to particularly focus on. But um, there is a bit to, to get there. Um, you've probably most likely heard, although it may have been sometime in the dim and distant past, a poem that was written by Rudyard Kipling as part of his Just So Stories, a book which began life as bedtime stories for his daughter Effie, actually Josephine, but reduced to Effie. The poem appears in the book The Elephant's Child, the story of a young African elephant's satiable curiosity about the world around him. He was always asking questions. He was often spanked for asking questions. But when he asked the question that one should never ask, what does the crocodile have for dinner? He was met with a great hush. It was a question to be avoided. Undaunted, however, the elephant's child pursued his question, pursued it almost to death as he encountered a crocodile by the great green greasy Limpopo River. Now, he emerged in the story from that experience a more capable, though not yet wise creature, for he still had much to learn. Simple fact is that we too have our experiences, but we still have much to learn. And there is no question that is unaskable, even if it goes a long way to discover the answers. But maybe a good place to begin the process as we explore a new series on Mark's words and works is with the poem with which Kipling ended the story of the elephant's child. He wrote, I keep six honest serving men. They taught me all I knew. Their names are what and why and when and how and where and who. So let's take these advices from Kipling. What, why, when, how, where, who. It is Luke rather than Mark, of course, who answers some of these early in his gospel. For in chapter 3, he begins the story of Jesus' ministry, though not his life, by setting the events in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrach, or ruler of Galilee, and so on. He gives a few more that would be lost in us. And two verses later, he gives a location, the where. He gives it as the country all around the River Jordan. So two answers from the Gospels. Now, Mark does not identify the time. But with reference to the Hebrew prophets, he acknowledges an even more significant geographical location. For in setting the scene, 
and it's going to build up to the arrival of Jesus, he quotes from the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. But even that comes after his first bold statement. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Which quotes from Malachi and Isaiah in order to lend weight to the argument that he's about to unfold. So we know the where, and we know the when, and we almost immediately know who this is about. Well, this story is not primarily about the messenger, but about the man and his message, the man to whom John the Baptist points, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. The story that unfolds is all about Jesus. But it's also about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. What it means to follow him and to walk in his ways. <coughs> we therefore skip pretty quickly by the story of John himself. Although it's a story worth exploring in its own right some other time. But we skip by these allusions to the prophet Elijah, except to acknowledge that for the Jews of the time, the reappearance of Elijah was supposed to herald the coming of the Messiah. The long-looked-for anointed one of God who would liberate God's people. And this is what they saw in John. The story proper really begins with the appearance of Jesus at the Jordan River, where John was calling people to repent and be baptized as a sign of God's forgiveness, a new start for those who turned back towards him. For it is the good news about him. And so Mark does not dwell on the story of Jesus' baptism as such, nor does he seek, unlike some of the other gospel writers, to explain why Jesus underwent baptism. A ritual that was required of those who were sinful. For what he is keen to emphasize is the authentication of who Jesus is and what he is about by the appearance of the Holy Spirit and the voice of God the Father from heaven saying to him, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And neither does Mark dwell, as Matthew and, Mark Luke, eh, Matthew and Luke do, on the Judean wilderness experience of the temptations. Mark is content to state that during a period of 40 days, Jesus was tempted by Satan. He doesn't tell us what these temptations were about. We have to go elsewhere for that. He doesn't even explicitly tell us that Jesus endured these temptations. Except it's implicit in the words that angels attended him. 
And so his appearance, a reappearance, is as one who was unscathed by the experience. He has come through that dark period and is ready for the world. But why such a hurry? There's a lot of depth in these stories and if we go to, to Luke and, and to, to Matthew. So why is Mark in such a hurry? Which is in fact a well-recognized feature of Mark's gospel, a short, the shortest of the gospels. Well, I'll come to that in a moment or two. But in the stories and teaching that follow, Mark is about to unfold answers to the other two really big questions around the story of Jesus. The why and the how. Which no one actually summed up better than his contemporary, the Apostle John, when he wrote the words we know as John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Now, Mark is not quite as explicit as that in his words. But the unfolding story works towards the same end in demonstrating who Jesus is and his works and his words. That indeed is the picture that will emerge. But back for a moment to the question, why is Mark in such a hurry? Some scholars have suggested that the imminence of persecution was the driving factor. He had to get to the end of the story so that people would know the great salvation that was in store for them before they were picked out. Others simply maintain that it was to do with the length of the scrolls that he had to write on. That he only had so many pages, as it were, because you don't bind them together on that day. The scroll was a certain length. Now, scholars have argued that. I'm never totally convinced about that one myself, to be honest. Um, although I remember getting told that at BB Bible class many, many moons ago. Um, there may be some element of truth in both of these. But I reckon it was just that Mark wanted to get to the very heart of the matter that he was concerned about. Telling what Jesus was about and why. So let us begin the exploration with some concentration on the first words that are actually spoken by Jesus. The words, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God has come near. Now let's first of all note that this was a declaration. The declaration of what God was about. Any human response to the call to repent and believe the good news comes and can only come about in response to God. God acts first. He comes to us. 
Only thereafter can we come to him. The kingdom of God has come. Now, living as we do in the United Kingdom, with the royal standard of Scotland often flown as a symbol of our identity as a people, maybe we feel that we should have as good an idea as anybody about what a kingdom means, what a kingdom is. But do we? Dictionaries generally define the term as a country, a state, or territory ruled by a king or a queen. So maybe we've got a head start on some of the republics elsewhere in the world. But perhaps a more legal definition might actually be a bit more helpful. One I picked up was a politically organized community or major territorial unit operating under a system of laws enacted by a monarchical form of government headed by a king or a queen. It's a bit more jargony. It's about living together under the rule of law. That perhaps comes a bit closer to the Jewish understanding of the kingdom of God. For it was God himself who gave them at Sinai a code of laws by which to live. And many were zealous to live according to that law. A law which Jesus never rejected, but simply wanted to get to the heart of because there was too much triviality around trying to keep it absolutely intact. We need to remember that when earthly kings came along at a later stage, when their ancestors sought a king like the kings of the other nations, primarily to lead them into battle, God said to the prophet Samuel, it is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Now, over time, the Jewish people were to suffer much at the hands of their kings. God had warned them so. And even under David, the one bright light that shone for them, they had to endure some hard times just the same. But when they looked back, even in the time of Jesus, when they looked back to the golden era of their kingdom, it was to the kingdom of Israel as it was under the rule of David. When David's star shone, it was a period during which their eyes were still not fully open to the glories of the kingdom of God. For these were not one and the same thing. In the days when Jesus walked the earth, Many still hoped for a restoration to these days, back to the time of David. They looked for a Messiah who would lead the long-looked-for liberation movement to separate them off from Roman occupation. And many, 
probably including Judas Iscariot, became disillusioned when it turned out that that was not the sort of business that Jesus was in. For Jesus came proclaiming a greater kingdom than the kingdom of Israel. He proclaimed the arrival of the kingdom of God, which, if anything, was a return to the days of Moses, when the people recognized that God was their king and mighty redeemer, the one who had liberated them from slavery and Egypt, took them safely through the waters of the Red Sea and gave them a law to live by, the God whose they were and whom they served. The call to repentance was both a call to recognize God as sovereign and a call to live in accordance with his ways. Ways which Jesus would teach with a renewed vigor and freshness, penetrating to the very heart of the written code by which they were all required to live. He would get down with them to the very core of what it meant to live as God's people. What it meant to them and what it means to us today is we also are desired by God that we live according to his ways. Live a life more like that of the Son whom he sent to show us the way. For the modern disciple, many of these same questions arise. Do we truly recognize the sovereignty of God in our lives? And are we prepared to learn from Jesus and from his example? That's quite a challenge. For we live in an age when the question, what is right, has been replaced by a question, what is right for me? Truth has often become the victim of expediency. Morality has, in many areas of life, become relative, not a given. Oh, it makes me feel good, makes me feel happy, makes me feel wanted. Biblical standards, when inconvenient, are either ignored or explained away. God is no longer the sovereign Lord for many people. Perhaps at best, one who is allowed to rule, if at all, only in accordance with man-made laws, man-made aims and objectives and desires. It's a bit like how our queen is supposed to be sovereign of this country, but she rules not according to ancient laws but by the whim of Parliament, who supposedly acts on behalf of the people. Dare I say, even our own Kirk's General Assembly is culpable. Theoretically, the General Assembly is bound by the first un un unalterable article declaratory of its constitution. And I should have had this blown up bigger for you, because... 
The bit I want to focus on is very, very small, even towards the bottom, slightly bolder. But that first article says that the church receives the word of God which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments as the supreme rule of faith and life. But so often it seeks to interpret these to fit the so-called modern context, making decisions which do not always recognize Scripture as the supreme rule of faith and life, but only at best as a significant contributor to understanding. Oh, how to lose the way so quickly to depart from the simple truths. If we who claim to follow Christ really were to heed his words, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news, then we really would be using the Bible as the supreme rule and guide for our lives. We would really and truly recognize that God is sovereign that he has the first call upon our lives and our allegiances. And everything else comes afterwards. And if we do so, we shall turn away from our waywardness, our sinful disobedience, and we'll turn towards him, eager to learn from Jesus what it means to walk in the ways of God and to be faithful to him who calls us by name to follow. Some of that my colleagues will be helping us to unpack in the weeks ahead. But having taken this start with the call of the kingdom, let us briefly pray and then we're going to sing, hear the call of the kingdom. Let us pray. Sovereign Lord, do not simply watch over us, but touch us by your Spirit with the love of Christ, so that we, in response, may show that we truly are yours, and that you are first and foremost in our lives. Amen.